You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, it is good to see you this morning. We come to the final week in our series, Glorious Design, uh, dealing with the issues of uh, human sexuality, marriage, gender identity, and the gospel. I know uh, some of you will be grateful that this series is over. Um, But I would say for those of you who've been part of the discussion groups, small groups throughout the week for this series, uh, yes, there is one more week. Initially, this is going to be a four-week series turned into a five-week one, but there's going to be one more. So I hope you will all show up um, and give your sensible and lively um, comments and personalities to those groups. Before I get started this morning, I want to remind you guys that tonight um, is a night of uh, prayer and worship from five to six. Really encourage you to be here, be a part of that. Um, It's a unique time. It's more intimate and casual and relaxed than Sunday mornings are able to be. So I encourage you to be there for that uh, prayer and worship tonight from five uh, to six. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and open them to Genesis, the first book um, in the Bible, Genesis chapter one. We will uh, move across scripture a bit uh, today as we're dealing with the general topic of human sexuality, human sexuality and the gospel, human sexuality and the gospel. What is it? Why did God uh, make us sexual beings? Um, While you're turning there, I just want to uh, share with you something that one of my kids showed me on uh, Instagram or or TikTok or somewhere uh, a week ago that illustrates the, the utter confusion and I would go further to say sheer heretical sort of worldview and, and cultural paganism that is more and more defining our cultural, our cultural landscape in the United States. It was a, a sort of celebratory post of a man and a woman um, in relationship married, except both were trans. So the man had transitioned into a woman and she was the wife. The woman had transitioned, transitioned into a man. He was the husband, but he was pregnant. But he was pregnant because he was a she still. And so, yeah, it's, it was funny. I mean, it, if you're going to put it out there, we're going to laugh and cry and mourn at the sheer absurdity depth of confusion and dangerous nation, uh, dangerous notion of the, the willful thumbing in the face of God at his creative design. So you've got a pregnant wife there with a male haircut, huge pregnant belly, which everyone feels the need to take pictures of and show now. And the wife as the husband, it was, I just stared at it a bit in in disbelief. But this is where we are. This is where we are. And we, we don't control the culture outside of us. But the great danger, as is always the danger with the church, and the reason that Paul had to address so many things, and Peter 
and John and James in the letters of the New Testament is that this stuff creeps in in a pluralistic synchronism kind of way into the church. And Christians get confused and Christians get defensive. So I want us to talk this morning about human sexuality while affirming the great movements of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and eventual restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Let's begin with verses that we've looked at, and many of you will know by heart in Genesis 1, verse 26. I'll just read 26 and 27. I'll tell you what, I'm just going to read 27 and 28. Let's look at 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now let's move uh, across the page a bit to chapter 2. Genesis 1 and 2 are two uh, pictures of creation with things listed in somewhat different orders, accomplishing different things with different pictures. Let's look at verse 18 of chapter 2 where it narrows down to God's creative activity. God had created Adam. Adam was distinctly different from the other animals. Everything had been good until this point. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now look down to verse 23. God makes a helper suitable for him. He makes woman, Eve. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, commenting on her likeness to him as a human being. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh, this picture of the marital union that Jesus picks up and affirms, that Paul picks up and affirms, and then puts on display and unpacks for us to understand as something that images to the world the centrality of the relationship between Christ and His church. I want to say a few things here uh, along the lines of human sexuality. One, human sexuality is God's idea, right? He, he could have made it where where human beings came from some sort of uh, asexual ability of a creature like some animals in zoos do, just popping out eggs that then hatch into human beings. But he didn't do that. He limited the scope of his commission to require a male and a female coming together in sexual union to be able to fulfill the commission that he gave them in, in Genesis 1, verse 28. Now, part of the issue was when Adam is alone, Adam is unable to deal with this. And I want to say this very quickly. There's been such a misunderstanding in the church, and we've communicated this uh, across the board to the great detriment of our brothers and sisters in Christ who were single. We, we have communicated it as if God said this in verse 15. 
Well, let me skip down. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's as if God said, it's not good for the man to be lonely. God didn't say he was lonely. He doesn't use that word here. Adam never said he was lonely. There's, there's no picture of loneliness here at all. It is simply the fact that Adam alone, it is not good because he cannot fulfill the commission that God has given. That's why Genesis 1 is a picture and Genesis 2 as a picture. He needs a helper. And hopefully some of you will remember me saying, don't get too misogynistic about this term in marriage because it is most often referred to God throughout the rest of the Old Testament with regard to his relationship with Israel his ability to keep Israel, his ability to restore Israel, his ability to redeem Israel, his ability uh, to, to bring about the potential and possibility that Israel can do and be what God has called Israel to do and to be. Obviously, human sexuality is anchored in the act of divine appointed procreation. Now, we rarely talk about it now. We have so distanced sex from procreation that, that they're rarely even discussed together. Uh, two authors who could not be more, more different in age, um, Rachel Gilson and J.I. Packer, both comment on this. The late J.I. Packer, Rachel Gilson said this, Protestants jumped on the contraception bandwagon so quickly and so fully that we don't talk well or often about procreation. The fact that the male-female relationship in marriage is a fruitful relationship that is supposed to reflect the fruitfulness of the gospel. Now, she's absolutely right, but I wanna say, this is why it's so painful. And Sharon and I walked through many years of this. This is why it's so painful in marriage when you yearn to be fruitful, you yearn to conceive, and you can't. It's painful because it, it runs contrary to God's design. It's been affected by sin. Our bodies have. Our emotions have. Our ability to fulfill all that God has designed has been. Gilson's absolutely right. J.I. Packer goes a little further here. He said, God's primary purpose in sex is procreation, is the procreation of the race. God's primary purpose in sex is the procreation of the race. We should not, and I dare say cannot, talk about sex biblically without talking about procreation. But today, too often, this is precisely the case. God's wise plan, says Packer, was procreation with pleasure, part of the goodness of God. Procreation with pleasure. But the context of the pleasure is intended to be procreation. At this point, I think, the Catholic tradition actually has it right. And in the separation of procreation and pleasure, where we focused exclusively on pleasure, a great deal of Protestant thinking about sex, gender, and marriage simply is it wrong. Packer's absolutely right. You, you would understand and be removed from some of the sort of uh, in-church culture guilt at times about maybe how your sexual relationship in marriage is going or not going in a given season if you understood that every time you were intimate in marriage, you had the chance 
of producing a child. Puts a whole new spin on it, doesn't it? But this is how God intended it. Clearly, in Genesis 1 and 2 and throughout Scripture, this is God's intent. There's something unique about the marriage relationship, unique about human sexuality. It is intended to produce more human beings, thus fulfilling the mandate and the commission of God within the committed covenant bonds of a marriage so that the family is full, healthy, and whole with both mother and father present. That's why if you've noticed in our culture across the last four or five years, there's there's been this move to dismiss the words husband and wife or spouse and replace it with what? Partner. That's exactly right. If you're sharp and you pay attention to what's happening culturally, you'll see this everywhere. Politicians use it. The media uses it. News uses it. It's in money. uh, It's in movies and TV commercials. Yes, everybody's trying to pretend like all relationships are the same. Can I just tell you, church, they're absolutely not. They're absolutely not. There is something God-ordained as different and unique about the marriage relationship. Sharon is my partner in a sense, but so is the person I work out with. But he is not my wife. She is my wife. Partner, yes, but more than partner. But there's this attempt to diminish it so that everyone feels good and no one feels bad. We all just have partners. A partner is someone you go into business with or exercise with. Your spouse is your spouse, husband or wife. So this is how God created. And then we slam a full force into human sin and depravity in Genesis 3. The man and woman violate the one thing that God commands them not to do. And God comes in his goodness to confront them. Look at verse 6 of Genesis 3. Well, let's start with the fall here. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, I want to comment on here, and, and Gilson or McLaughlin comment on this, that it's interesting that God builds his commandment of no around a a fruit, around the eating of fruit. One of the most benign, delightful things we experience as human beings. She didn't say like, don't murder one another. That could have been intrinsically understood by them. Okay, that that wouldn't be good, right? But no, he he gives something that causes them to have to, to look through the commandment to the one giving it and trust him. And say, I don't know why I shouldn't eat this food. I know this is what he said, but fruit's not bad. Even vegans eat fruit. And they're scared of everything. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. I have to try to say naked, because from Texas I say naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound 
of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. For the first time, their experience of God was fear, not pleasure and delight. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, well, I heard you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is, guys, like when your wife asks you a question. You should always assume that she knows the answer. (laughs) Never answer anything your wife asks you until you feel certain that you know what she's really asking. That's just a bit of marital counsel. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It was that other thing you made. She did it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Adam's basically like, this is really on you, Lord. I didn't make her. You did this to me. You gave her to me. And she's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. There was a serpent and this thing and something happened and I'm not even sure. But when this happens, all of God's created order is fractured. All of it. All of who you are, your will, your body, your emotion, your mind, all has been fractured and tainted by sin and by the effects of the fall, including your sexuality. Heterosexual, homosexual, doesn't matter. When it comes to this, we are all fractured and broken here. Every one of us have been affected by this. And you see this downward spiral of violence and sexual sin that just begins to flow from Genesis 4 all the way to Genesis 11, where human beings, in a way that our culture is doing right now, begins to build this tower up to God to make themselves God. And God has none of it, and He scatters them and begins to work with Abraham and Sarah. Now, if you turn over to Romans, all the way over to Romans, you see some of the fullness of the effects of the fall and the sin as it's working its way out. And part of the beauty and the, the rational, intelligent argument for the Christian faith is it can so adequately and fully explain the world as we have it now in a way that no other philosophy or religion can. I mean, why is it a given that you're going to disappoint people today, that you're going to say things you shouldn't say, that you're going to think things you shouldn't say? Why is it necessary that every society, tribe, or culture has to have police or something like them? Why is it that every culture has to have a military? So that when it comes time to kill one another, we can adequately do that and hopefully do that better than the culture or nation that we're up against. It's because of original sin and the effects of it, church. 
All right, let's look at Romans 1 now. Romans 1, beginning with verse 18. The wrath of God, Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who surpass the truth who suppress the truth, I'm sorry, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Don't, don't miss that. The wrath of God's being revealed against godlessness and against the godlessness of wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, right? It's not God suppressing truth in them or not revealing it to them. It's us suppressing it with our wickedness. We've moved from creation to fall. Now we see in the fact that Paul is writing a letter to a church on the other side of the coming of Christ, his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension back to the right hand of God the Father, that redemption has now been made possible. Now there's a new community of men and women that's including all races, that's including masters and slaves, men and women alike coming together in Rome the power seat of the known world, learning to live as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is to this redemptive community that Paul's writing, talking about the human condition. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This is a powerfully heavy, clear statement. I always think about this. I've shared this with you before when someone says I'm an atheist. I always think, sometimes I say it depends on the context of the relationship. No, they're not. Because I have to either trust what they're saying or trust what the Apostle Paul's saying in Romans. And what the Apostle Paul's saying is that what may be known about God is plain to human beings because God has made it plain to us. That he's made his invisible qualities since the creation, his eternal power and divine nature clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This is the picture of general revelation. Is it enough to save us? No. We need the special revelation that God gave in Jesus Christ, recorded in Scripture that points us to our need to be saved. But it is absolutely enough to condemn us. There's enough of God seen. And Romans 1 says, He's made Himself clearly and plainly seen and known. Verse 21 for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, this is a picture of where we are culturally right now. A culture that it claims to be wise, claims to be enlightened, claims to see, see things so much better now. You know, our grandparents are just fuddy-duddies. We understand what they're confused about now. We know about love and justice and inclusivity. Paul would say, no, you don't. He'd say, your thinking has become futile and your foolish hearts are darkened. You're claiming to be wise, but you're becoming fools. 
And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. In place of God, due to the futility of our thinking and darkening of our hearts, we create our own gods. We may not shape them and form them in the garage, but we shape and form them in our minds and hearts, and we give them allegiances that belong only to God and God alone. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over. It's a picture of God just releasing, saying, okay, run after it then. Parents, you ever, you ever been at that point with your kids? You're like, all right, have at it. I'm going to sit back with a bag of popcorn and watch. I remember I've shared this story with you, but it's been so long, none of you would remember, um, which might have been last week or two, but it's been a long time now. But I, we would go to Colorado often growing up for different reasons. And we were there one time on a trip, a business trip with my dad. My little brother was with me. And we were camping down by a river just outside of Durango, Colorado. And it was way too early in the summer, might even have been late spring, for that river to have been warm. But I wanted to swim so bad. I couldn't stand it. I've always been solar-powered and, and water-filled. Um, I like the sun and I like the water. And I nagged my dad and nagged my dad. And only parents know the power of a nagging child. They will nag you until your physical being wastes away and you lose your mind. He said, it's too cold, son. It is way too cold, actually, to swim. No, it's not, dad. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Fine. Have at it. And he sat down on a little rock and crossed his legs there and watched with great delight as I ran with all passion and speed out into that river and walked on water coming back out. It was the coldest water I have ever been in in my life. Now, the consequences weren't too bad then. I just shivered for quite a while before my body regulated temperature again. But the stakes are very high here. The stakes are very high here. When you and I take things that aren't God and we elevate them to God, and in our human arrogance, we purport to have wisdom that God calls foolishness long enough and seriously enough, and in the face of God enough that he says, fine, there are eternal consequences. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. This is what sexual impurity in all of its forms does. It degrades our bodies. Now Paul's talking historically now about the human condition and human sexuality penetrated by sin and human beings being unwilling to submit and respond to the revelation of God that they've been given. 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Don't miss Paul's continual relationship here between idolatry and immorality. Idolatry and immorality, they are necessarily connected. We looked at that some last week. One breeds the other, one reveals the other. Verse 26, because of this, because of this idolatrous exchange that has led to sexual impurity, 
God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships or relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul is clearly addressing here in black and white terms homosexual practice among men and women, which he lays out not only as sin, contradictory to God's established and created will, but against nature itself. That God's very creation, God's natural design of human bodies and the created order testifies against that form of sexual impurity. Furthermore, verse 28, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind so that they do what ought not be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness. Paul doesn't stop here with sexual immorality and specifically homosexuality as sort of uh, the epitome of God's created order run amok in sin. He says they became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Some of you knew people like that in high school. They disobey their parents, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's a profound, powerful, penetrating passage that should strike all of us in here. In fact, some of us are feeling pretty proud now because we think at least we've got our sexual house in order, which you probably don't. But look at the other kinds of sin that Paul lumps in here. Greed. Man, if there's anything we just really don't believe is sin, it's greed. Can I tell you with all love, church, if you're able to come here week in and week out and spend all your money on yourself, not giving back to God as you have been commanded to do, as has been modeled for you, a portion of what all belongs to God anyway, you need to seriously reconsider, if you consider yourself a believer, whether or not that's the case. And if it's easy for you to sit here week in and week out and blow all your money on yourself, revealing the depth at which greed has a hold of you and you're comfortable with it and practicing it, I would encourage you to hear a word from God. And I would do the same thing. If lying comes that easily to you, if disobedience to your parents is no issue with you, and on and on we could go gossip, strife, deceit, Malice, if it's so easy for you to wound people by gossiping, if you feed off of that like you do a dessert buffet, 
Paul would say, it's extremely likely, no matter how long you sit in church, no matter how you vote, no matter what you think about yourself, you are actually not a Christian. You are not a citizen of the kingdom of God, whose heart has been regenerated by the Spirit of God, so that your values and your pleasures and your delights are now shaped by God rather than yourself. A powerful, profound passage that Paul is giving to a redemptive community because they need their thinking straightened out just as we need our thinking straightened out here. Douglas Moo, who's a New Testament scholar and commentator, says with regard uh, to the passage here, in keeping with the biblical and Jewish worldview, the heterosexual desires observed normally in nature are traced to God's creative intent. Sexual sins that are, quote, against nature are also then against God. It is clear that Paul depicts homosexual activity as a violation of God's created order, another indication of the departure from true knowledge and worship of God. Now, we're going to be turning to 1 Corinthians 6 to… Look at our last passage. So you can go ahead and be turning there. And I know some of you, you may be feeling like, man, why, why are you hammering so much on, on same-sex behavior? Because that is what our culture is hammering on so much right now. Because that is the trumpet sound, the drumbeat, the marching cadence of our society telling us And we are buying into it. Professing Christians are. And we need our thinking straightened out. Don't be fooled. There's enough heterosexual sin in the church to fill every crevice of hell for eternity. Regardless of our inclination or natural attraction, purity And faithfulness to God is the call for all Christ's followers. It's the parameters that God establishes. All right, let's look just at three verses in 1 Corinthians 6. As we look at restoration, creation, Genesis 1 and 2, fall on display in Genesis 3, and profoundly with all chapters and books in Scripture following that, all of human history, we see redemption in the community in the church in Rome, yet Paul is having to instruct them strongly because their culture was like ours. It was wildly sexually permissive, filled with immorality, and Christians were being saved out of that. And imagine this, their thinking didn't immediately change. It took teaching. It took the application of God's Word by the Holy Spirit to their hearts to change them. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know? Do you not know? Well, let me, let me start by this. Corinth was a really messy church. Very gifted, but very messy. Uh, really confused about um, what life should look like on the other side of redemptive experience with Christ. What the Christian ethic and Christian morality what love manifests the human relationships look like. So Paul's having to address quite a few things here. Finally, in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? What Paul is saying is what he says here in Galatians uh, with the fruit of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. He's not saying that if you do wrong, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's true, all of us 
are in big trouble. He's saying if your life is characterized by wrongdoing, if that's the pattern of your life, it reveals a life that has not been filled with the Spirit. It reveals a life that has not been transformed and made right by God. It reveals a life that is not um, on the pathway of sanctification. And Paul understands that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness, and the unrighteous will not inherit it. And all of us are by nature unrighteous. And the beauty of the gospel is that it informs us that if, we're, if we will have it, God has put the penalty for our unrighteousness on Jesus, and Jesus gladly took it on himself and absorbed the fullness of the wrath of God on the cross, the penalty for the sins for all who will believe, and in turn gives us his righteousness through which God views us. Verse 9, do not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. If there's anything that we could say over and over and over and over right now in a culture that's lost its mind, it's brother or sister in Christ, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. And I'll say right here that the Greek word, well, I'll say that in a minute. Let me say out here. Um, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul here um, throws out all forms of sexual immorality here. He covers everything. The sexually immoral, which would cover everybody having any kind of, of sexual expression outside of the covenant bonds of marriage. Adulterers, which are obviously people within the covenant bond of marriage having sex outside of the union in which they find themselves. Men who have sex with men, speaking about homosexual relationships there, whether male or female is the implication. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, again, very powerful statement, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers. Obviously, this is a representative list, not a comprehensive one. Like you might get to the end of the list and go, whoo, glad he didn't mention whatever. This is representative, not comprehensive. But look at what he says in verse 11. This is the beauty of the God we serve and the power of the gospel. And that is what some of you were. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were sexually immoral. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were men who were sexually engaged with other men. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were greedy. Some of you were slanderers, were swindlers. That is what you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified, which means you've been walking in progressive holiness, allowing the Holy Spirit to form in you the person and image of Christ. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit 
of our God. See that Trinitarian language there? Justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is old creation versus new creation. You were old creation. You represented the fall. You were dead in Adam. And you've been made new in Jesus. New creation has come. It's been forgiven. You're not defined now by what you used to be. And what you used to be should not be a pattern of practice for you in your new life in Christ. You and I, we don't accidentally stop sinning. But make no mistake, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to say no to sin. Now, we're still going to be fractured. We're still sinful. But we've got to make war on our sin. We've got to make war on the patterns of sin that come naturally to us. Human sexuality is God's idea. It's a good and beautiful gift of God to be experienced in marriage. But here, in this particular passage, Paul uses two different Greek words in this verse that the NIV rightly and quite literally translates as men who have sex with men to encompass the common terms of the day that refer to a, the, the broad range of same-sex relationships and behavior, lumping them all in with other forms of sexual immorality and adultery. And Christopher Yawn, in, in the best single book on this called Holy Sexuality, makes note of the fact that we've created this dichotomy between homosexuality and heterosexuality, and we're, we're almost relieved as long as people are heterosexual, regardless of however they express that, right? However much the sex they have, whatever they do that's immoral, as long as it's heterosexual, that's fine. But he, he rightly notes historically that those categories there, that definition, are psychological categories. And what we need to find uh, and get from Scripture is a third category of holy sexuality. Holy sexuality that is expressed equally in faithful singleness and faithful marriage. Jesus seemed to think singleness was quite all right. That's what he chose for himself. The Apostle Paul seemed to not have any problem with singleness. Faithful singleness is a beautiful, God-honoring way to live. In fact, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 7 that for some, given the season or the times or certain circumstances, it is preferred. It is preferred over marriage. And I would just say this, Jesus didn't come and die on a cross so that you could find a spouse one day and get married. That's an idolatrous view of marriage that's going to destroy you. He died on the cross so you could be brought into a relationship with God, restored, and be participants in God's coming new creation. Holy sexuality is what God calls us to. And that requires self-denial, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether your natural attractions are toward members of the opposite sex or toward members of the same sex. So let me just give you a few questions and implications that sort of arise out of the biblical picture of holy sexuality for human beings, sexuality that honors God, our creator and redeemer, and comes in our culture. And all of these are ones that I have been asked. Let's start here very practically with this question. So, so what about Pride Month, though? Pride Month, if you don't know, 
um, begins June 1. June 1 is no longer culturally the sort of unofficial beginning of summer. It is the beginning of, of Pride Month. And I want to read to you something more than I would normally read because I feel like Kevin DeYoung here says it better than I could say it. So instead of pretending like I could say it better, I just thought I would give you uh, what I feel like is quite a good take on this. Should Christians, how do we think about Pride Month? How do we, uh, how do we approach it as Christ follower? And I can tell you, part of the beauty of social media is it lets you uh, get a snapshot across the spectrum of how confused the church is on this. Here's what DeYoung writes about Pride Month. Pride Month is a government-sponsored, corporate-promoted 30-day celebration of LGBTQ acceptance and achievements. It's a brilliant marketing strategy linking gay liberation to pride. LGBTQ advocates have accomplished an ethical and strategic coup here. The rallying cry of pride transformed their quest for culture-wide moral legitimacy, which is a daunting task, um, into a personal plea for therapeutic well-being, a much easier goal. The debate would not be a rational debate about whether their practices and worldview are permissible by God's Word, natural law, or even Western tradition. It would not be about what was good for children, good for the public, or even good for those drawn to LGBTQ behavior. Instead, the concept of pride made the debate about feelings of personal acceptance. Convincing people to stop making others feel bad is much easier as a sell than changing the culture. He goes on and says this, by marching for quote-unquote pride rather than marching for gay sex or gender reassignment surgeries for minors, the public isn't asked to affirm actions and appearances they find distasteful or morally wrong. They're simply asked to affirm that people should not feel ashamed of themselves. The questions are put before us. Do you want to make people feel bad about themselves? Do you want to make people suffer? I can tell you, after spending a week with Jake at a pastor's conference, I kind of like to make him suffer because he harassed me by trying to hug me and put his arm around me all week, imploring me to get more deeply in touch with my emotions, which grosses me out. Aren't you concerned about suicide and self-loathing? This is always the line you're given. Well, how could you believe that you're going to make someone commit suicide? Pride Month turns a moral argument about which the Bible has clear and unequivocal answers into a quest for personal self-acceptance, which is why many soft-hearted and muddle-headed Christians line up for the parade just like everyone else. But of course, pride is not the only antidote for shame. There are other alternatives like contrition, repentance, and chastity, or spirit-empowered struggle and victory or gospel-infused forgiveness and transformation. I do, I do believe what you see on social media around Pride Month from professing Christians, celebrating, waving the rainbow flag, does reveal what Kevin DeYoung says here. Individuals who are truly soft-hearted and muddle-headed when it comes 
to biblical truth. So I don't get on the wagon for Pride Month. I don't get on the wagon for it. I cannot celebrate that which God condemns. Nor will I be made to feel guilty for not doing so. And this is what I encourage you just to think about. Next thing you hear, but Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. This is a quick and an easy one. Jesus never spoke about homosexuality in the sense that is only the strictest, most unhelpful sense, meaning he never mentioned it by using the actual word, nor did he mention rape or child abuse or fraud or idolatry. But there are two ways to talk about something. You can either condemn every form of sexual immorality that is wrong, or you can point to a vision of what is right, and this is what Jesus chose to do. Like if if I have five women in front of me, I can tell you who my wife is by saying, that one's not my wife, that one's not my wife, that one's not my wife, and that one's not my wife. Or I can say, that one, that's my wife. And this is what Jesus does in Matthew 19 and consistently and repeatedly throughout the Gospels. He affirms the Mosaic understanding of the sanctity of sex within the the covenant bond of marriage between one woman and one man for life. You'll, you'll also hear uh, people sometimes say, this is just an aside. Well, Paul wasn't talking about same-sex relationships like we have them today. Uh, uh, in Paul's world, they didn't have the kind of committed, lifelong, faithful same-sex unions. And anyone that says that is just deep. They're either being untrue or they're deeply ignorant historically. Um, I don't need to say anything else. The evidence is out on there. We know quite well that the, the Greco-Roman world knew well, knew well, the cases of lifelong same-sex unions. Now, they would not have called them marriage. Uh, they, were, they were clearer than we are today on what constitutes a marriage. Last thing, and you'll hear this often, especially from younger generations. Well, the church got slavery wrong. Isn't the issue of same-sex relationships and marriage really like that? Like, won't, won't our kids and grandkids be embarrassed about our stand today? Won't they understand this better than we do? Let me just say this, there are six biblical passages where homosexuality is directly talked about, and every single one of them in the Old Testament and the New Testament, without exception, are negative, either condemning or prohibiting the behavior. It's as clear as anything else is in the Bible. I would say, secondly, the church didn't get slavery wrong. Portions of the church in the Western world got slavery wrong for a period of time. But it was not because they were reading their Bible too much, it's because they were reading too little of it. It's because they could quote verses, but they could not think theologically about a God who creates human beings in his image in the beginning and all of the implications of that. They weren't able to think theologically as they read and watched that throughout Scripture, God continues to place restrictions, 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 as if he's pulling the air out of a fire until the fire has no ability to remain alive anymore. He does the same thing with polygamous relationships. And it was the church that led the way. It was Christians that led the way to the abolition of the slave trade and the abolition of slavery in the United States. My prayer for us, church, is that we will be men and women who are willing to trust God and God's glorious gospel-centered divine, a design for gender, marriage, and all of human sexuality. 
that we will love people radically and generously regardless of what they struggle with, regardless of what they experience in their lives, that we will be people of conviction and compassion, both always, and that we will not experience and display the same kind of confusion that our fellow countrymen do and many throughout the West do on these issues. We should not. And finally, that we can trust as the band begins to make their way back up here and prepares to lead us in a time of worship and response and reflection, that we can trust that what God says and what God gives, He says and gives for our good, for human flourishing, not to deny us of anything. Let's stand. As we move into a time of prayer, worship and response to God's word, a time of receiving offering, as well as your connection cards, I'm gonna pray for us in just a minute. And while I'm praying, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions, their buckets ready. And when I finish praying, they'll pass the buckets. You can drop in your connection cards. If you give on Sunday morning as opposed to online or throughout the week, um, you can drop those in as well. I just wanna tell you this. Um, briefly. On the other end of your generosity, always, um, is changed lives. Changed lives are what's on the other end of your giving. Just to highlight one of those uh, very quickly this morning, PB Rich is a school that we've had a relationship with for a long time, an under-resourced middle school. Um, their principal and their counselor know to reach out to us at any time if there are needs we could meet. And a couple of weeks ago, the counselor called spoke with Jake and said, hey, we've got a family here who has a son who's wanted to play soccer for so long and they simply cannot afford it. They literally can't afford it. And any of you who have kids in sports, you know, it's expensive. It takes a lot of money um, even to play sports in public schools now. Would you guys be willing to pay the fee so that he could play soccer? And Jake said, absolutely, we'll do that. So we paid that fee to provide his uh, in-town and away, home and away uniforms, cleats, shin guards, socks, hair product, whatever he needs to play soccer. And then we trust the Lord with what God does that, with that. We've asked them to reach out when they feel like there's a legitimate need. They felt like this was one. We gave because you guys give. And that little guy is playing soccer now for the first time. And his family's so grateful. And you never know. You never know what God may do with that. As they know that it was the people of God that made that possible. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word that is so clear. God, thank you that when you want to tell us something, clearly in the way that a Paul would say it, God, you call a Paul to say it. And through his personality and his words guided by your spirit, you speak truth to us. Empower us to trust you. God, thank you for everyone who's about to give and all who've given throughout this week and give regularly to your glory, to the good of 
brothers and sisters in this church, to the good of the wider community, to the advancement of the gospel. May they be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.